I confess that I am troubled by our modern attitudes about sin. We stress love and grace so much today that we fail to take sin seriously. Yes, my sin is great, but God's grace is greater. This is true. But if we don't stress the greatness of our sin, we will never understand the greatness of God's grace. There is a remarkable picture of spiritual cleansing from sin in the Old Testament. It is the Day of Atonement. Every Israelite understood the concept of atonement because every year they participated in the same ritual. On that day, the people took two goats. One goat was slaughtered in a very bloody ritual as a sin offering to God. The other goat was then used to picture the removal of sin. The high priest would lay his hands on the live goat and confess the sins of the people. The nation symbolically laid their sins on the live goat and sent it off into the desert to wander far away from the people. In this way, God pictured both the payment for sin in the dead goat and the removal of sin in the scapegoat, because God takes sin seriously. In Zechariah 5, we have two visions which convey a united picture to the people of Israel. Notice, first of all, that the word of God curses sinners in verses 1 through 11. I think that we sometimes create a misunderstanding by our preaching when we say that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. We do not mean that the sinner escapes God's judgment by this statement. The principle is true, of course, but God takes sin so seriously that he judges the sinner for the sin. God curses people in these verses, not merely abstract sins. It is people who go to hell, not their sins. So the message of the sixth vision of Zechariah is that the word of God curses sinners, not just sins. Notice in the first two verses that the word of God curses publicly. Zechariah 5, verses 1 and 2. Then I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is twenty cubits, and its width is ten cubits. So Zechariah sees a flying scroll in this vision. The King James Version uses the word roll, but this is not a roll like you might eat. This is a giant scroll like those which contain the law of God. This scroll is not all rolled up and placed in the archives where they kept the scrolls of God's word. This scroll is flying through the sky and was unrolled for all to read, both the front and the back of the scroll. The scroll was like a gigantic banner spread across the sky for all to see. And the scroll was huge. It was approximately 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, as the NIV correctly translates. Many commentators have seen something significant in these numbers. They corresponded to the dimensions of both the tabernacle in Exodus 26 and the porch on Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 6. 
However, I think making a connection to those two structures is a reach. The point, I believe, is very simple. The Word of God curses publicly. No person could claim ignorance because the scroll was large enough to be a billboard of God's warnings to everyone. Just so, no one was exempt from its judgment either. Our job as Christians is to make sure that the warnings of the Word of God are made known in our culture. We're not responsible for whether sinners heed those warnings or not. But God will hold us accountable when we do not explain his warnings to the people in our communities. God takes sin so seriously that he makes sure that the sinner knows the consequences of his sin. We must make sure that sinners know the consequences of their sin as well. The warnings about sin must be like a billboard advertising to the world what God says are the consequences of sin. In verses 3 and 4, we see not only does the Word of God curse publicly, but the Word of God curses powerfully. Then he said to me, This is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief, and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, and it will spend the night within that house, and consume it with its timber and stones." So the scroll was inscribed on both sides. Apparently one side contained the curse of the third commandment in the law, and the other side contained the curse of the eighth commandment. The third commandment against swearing was on the first tablet of the law. The eighth commandment against stealing was on the second tablet of the law. In this way, the two tablets of the law were represented in the scroll. It's not so much that these were the only two laws being stated. It is that these two laws represented the two aspects of the whole law of God, namely duty to one's neighbor and duty to God. There are both horizontal and vertical obligations in God's law. We must relate properly to God, the vertical relationship, and we must relate properly to others, the horizontal relationship. Later, in the New Testament, James will say in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. We have a tendency, and perhaps we always will have this tendency, to see some sins as worse than others. We are often selective in the sins we condemn. We attack some sins, and we overlook other sins, or minimize those sins, particularly if they are our sins. The point is that all sin is abhorrent to God. If we fail just once, or in just one area of the law, we are guilty of the curse of the whole law. 
If you read the biographies of great men of God like Augustine's Confessions or David Brainerd's Diary, you will find a deep sense of their own sinfulness. The closer we get to God, the more we notice our sin, not the less. That is why the Apostle Paul could write that he was the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. If you are unconcerned about your own sinfulness, watch out, my friends. You are likely walking far from God. It is when we walk close to God that we notice how abhorrent our sin is to him. Notice in verse 3 that the word of God has the power to purge. The curse purges. The Hebrew word can mean to cut off or it can mean to banish. Either way, the point is that sinners are driven from the land. It sounds so harsh and so unloving. Israel was to drive away or cut off people from their assembly, their fellowship. They were not to tolerate blatant and unrepentant sin in their midst. That is how seriously God takes sin. Now remember, of course, that even in the nation of Israel, repentance brought restoration. God had graciously provided sacrifice for sin as a way to be restored to God and not be banished. It was only unrepentant sin or defiant sinners that God told the people to banish from the land. The Apostle Paul speaks to the church of Corinth in a similar way in his passage on church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. The Corinthians were proud of their tolerance for the man who had taken his father's wife for himself. Paul told them to put the person out of their fellowship. Your boasting is not good, he said. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Once again, Paul is talking about unrepentant sin. Grace is available for those who repent. The Word of God curses sinners powerfully. God will purge sinners, if necessary, from the land of Israel. And God will purge sinners from the church as well, if they do not repent of their sins. All you have to do is remember Ananias and Sapphira to see how seriously God takes sin. God struck them both dead for lying to the apostles in Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira are object lessons for us today. If we don't repent of our sin, the word of God has the power to consume as well as purge, Zechariah 5, 4. The curse purges and the curse consumes. The little pronoun it must refer to the curse in this context. The curse contained in God's word will enter the homes of unrepentant sinners and consume them and all they possess. We cannot escape the curse of God upon sin. 
We may think that we can avoid it, but in the end we will be consumed by our sin. God's word enters the hearts and the homes of people where we cannot go in person, and God's word always accomplishes its purpose. God said through the prophet Isaiah, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Isaiah 55.11 God's word will bring judgment on sin one way or another. The Israelite family might move away, might die, God might send an army to take them captive, but his word will accomplish its purpose, and the same can be said today. A number of years ago, a Long Beach, California police officer found a card in a phone booth with these words on it. King Heroin is my shepherd, I shall always want. He maketh me lie down in the gutters. He leadeth me beside the troubled waters. He destroyeth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of wickedness for the effort's sake. Yea, I shall walk through the valley of poverty and will fear all evil. For thou, heroine, art, art with me. Thy needle and capsule try to comfort me. Thou strippest the table of groceries in the presence of my family. Thou robbest my head of reason. My cup of sorrow runneth over. Surely heroin addiction shall stalk me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the damned forever. It's been called the Psalm of the Addict. Became quite well known. But it is also the psalm of the sinner. All sin consumes and destroys if repentance does not take place. The nature of sin is death. Sin pays death wages, as Paul tells us in Romans 6.23. The sin of the addict is just more visible than other sins that people commit. In one sense, the curse of God on sin is that man will be eaten by his own choices in life. To paraphrase one writer, sinners are cannibals committing suicide by nibbling on themselves. So friends, the message of the sixth vision of Zechariah is that the word of God curses sinners. The message of the seventh vision is that the power of God cleanses sin, verses 5 through 11 in Zechariah 5. I am so glad that God followed that sixth vision quickly with the seventh vision. If the curse was all we knew from God's word, we would be most miserable. We would have no hope. Hopeless. It's not enough to know that God curses sinners. We must always remember that God cleanses sin. God had to deal with not only the sinner, but also sin itself. 
The seventh vision is all about the removal of this sinful world system. It's all about the purging of the sin principle from our world. Notice in verses 5 through 8 that God conquers sin. When the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what, what this is going forth. I said, What is it? And he said, This is the ephah going forth. Again he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said to me, This is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. An ephah was a well-known standard household measure of about five gallons in size. It was a large basket. A five-gallon container would not be large enough to hold a person, so we must see this in the same proportions that we view the scroll. This ephah is larger than life. In the ephah is a woman sitting who is called wickedness. She is the personification of all evil in this world. And evil is often personified as a woman in the scriptures. That's not to men, meant to insult the ladies, of course. The woman is mostly hidden from sight inside the basket, just like evil in this world, which is mostly hidden from sight as well. However, the woman tries to escape, and, and a struggle develops. The angel pushes the woman back into the basket and puts the lid on the basket. The point is that there is a great war going on between good and evil in this world. The Hebrew words used here indicate a titanic struggle. The angel threw her down and cast a lead weight on the top of the baskets. The words threw her down and cast a lead weight indicate that the angel uses violent force to control evil in this world. There is a monumental struggle going on between the forces of God and the forces of Satan. It is mostly an unseen war which is waged all around us. We, too, are part of this spiritual war raging in this universe. Yet, we are often oblivious to it. Never forget that we are part of God's battle plan, and we have jobs to do in this war with evil in this world. Now, friends, we must be very careful not to become philosophical dualists. Dualists are philosophers who believe that good and evil are co-equal forces that have always existed and will always exist in conflict with one another. The Bible never teaches dualism. God and Satan, good and evil, are not co-equal forces in this world. God is always in control. This vision clearly indicates that the forces of God are greater than the forces of Satan. God is the winner, and we are on the winning side of this battle. What's the point of the basket? The basket symbolizes the full measure of sin. 
an ephah was a measuring container. When evil reaches its full measure in this world, then the lid will be put on and sin will be conquered forever. There is a limit, and God determines that limit, not Satan. Now, aren't you encouraged by that thought today? Evil is not unlimited, friends. There is an end to evil when God decides to end it. If God conquers sin, then one day it will also be true that God removes sin, verses 9 through 11. Then I, Zechariah, lifted up my eyes and looked, and there two women were coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. I said to the angel who was speaking with me, Where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, To build a temple for her in the land of Shinar, and when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Zechariah sees in this vision two women with the wings of storks, which come to carry the basket away, and the woman in it, to the land of Shinar. Shinar is just another name in the Bible for the land of Babylon or Babylonia. God is preparing a place for evil in the land of Babylon. This place where God puts evil is destined for destruction. God has already revealed that to Zechariah. He's already revealed that Babylon will be judged for its sin. So in taking evil to Babylon, he is telling Zechariah that he is taking evil to be judged. God has warned his people to get out of the land of Babylon before he judges it. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, here's what he said. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Historically, God judged Babylon with the Medo-Persian Empire as Daniel famously predicted by reading the handwriting on the wall of the palace in Babylon, Daniel chapter 5. Babylon becomes the symbol of evil, though, later in Scripture. I believe that this is imagery and background for the Apostle John's imagery and story of the great harlot in Revelation chapters 17 and 18. John sees a woman sitting on a beast who is called Babylon the Great. She considers herself the Queen of Heaven. An angel from heaven cries out in Revelation, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. 
She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong." Jeremiah had talked about false religion as the worship of the Queen of Heaven and how God would judge all who worship the Queen of Heaven in Jeremiah 44. Zechariah talks about God's judgment of the woman called wickedness in the land of Babylon. The fulfillment of this vision just like the other six visions given to Zechariah, takes place at the beginning of the millennial kingdom when God cleanses the land of Israel. That's Revelation 17 and 18. There is coming a day when the world will fill up its full measure of sin and false religion will fill up its full measure of wickedness. And God will say, Enough is enough, and slam the lid down on evil in this world. Now, I don't know when that day is coming, but I know on the basis of God's word that the day is coming. Sometimes it seems so dark in this world, and we can easily forget that God wins. Just think of the Middle Ages prior to the Reformation. The period we call the Middle Ages was so dark, even secular historians call it the Dark Ages. There was John Huss of Bohemia, who was burned at the stake by the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, the church. He was burned at the stake for preaching the gospel. There was Jerome Savonarola of Florence, Italy, who was imprisoned, hanged to death, and burned by order of the church. The church had become evil, seduced by the queen of heaven to persecute true believers. And if you had lived in the 1300s and the 1400s, you would have thought that the end of the world was very near because of the darkness all around you, when even the church had become evil. You would have had no way of knowing that in this titanic struggle against sin, 
there was coming a great reformation led by men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and a host of others proclaiming God's word in this world. Great missionary outreaches, great revivals were to come in the centuries to follow. And people all over the world were to be reached with the gospel. Millions would come to Christ all over this globe. So my friends, don't sell God short. We do not know when the end will come, but we do know that it will come when God decides and not before. When sin has filled up the basket of evil to its fullest measure, then God will slam down the lid. Until then, we must focus on the fight and remember that we are on the victory side. We are winners, not losers, no matter how dark the world looks today. And we know this. We know that God takes sin seriously. And he is just, and he is holy, and he will judge sin one day. In fact, God takes sin so seriously that he cursed his own son in our place. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why? So that we could enjoy the cleansing from the curse which comes by faith in Christ, in Christ alone. I repeat this quote of Philip Yancey reverently, and seriously right now. The curse word expresses it well. God be damned. And on the cross, God was damned. Friends, God cursed Christ so that Christ could cleanse you. All that matters eternally is do you trust Christ for your cleansing from the curse? That's the message of Christianity. That's the gospel. One day, one day, we will see the ultimate fulfillment of that cleansing for the whole world. But for now, understand this. By his grace, he will cleanse you from your sin by faith in him. As a pastor for many years, I have sat at the bedside of dying people on numerous occasions. Sometimes it was in a hospital room where the patient was hooked up to IVs and monitors. Other times it was in a hospice facility or a nursing home as the patient was taking their last breaths on earth. Still, other times I went to the home and sat by the bed of a loved one nearing the end of life. Often, the family would leave me alone with the patient at his or her request so that we could talk in private. The conversations we had together in those private moments were never casual. The greatest sports fans in the world do not care about their favorite sports teams at that moment in time. Politics is irrelevant. Money fame, and achievements become meaningless. Jobs, hobbies, and plans all recede into nothing as the end of life approaches. 
Family and friends rise near the top of those conversations. But only one topic is most vital, is most essential in those moments. I always ask the inevitable question, Are you ready to meet God? If not, would you like to be ready? The honest answer to those questions is the only topic that matters as you get ready to take your last breaths on this earth, my friend. So I ask you today, are you ready? Are you under the curse or are you under the cleansing?